your dreams, the height of your wishes. Hello and welcome to the Mormon Stories podcast. My name is John DeLynn. I'm very excited to be with you today. Um, it's been a little bit of time since I've done the last podcast. I've been uh, busy over on uh, sunstoneblog.com helping out with, with their stuff and preparing for the Seattle Sunstone Symposium. But I hadn't forgot about you. Um, I am very excited to continue Mormon Stories. And I'm sorry for the uh, the pause. But here we are. Um, today we have a, a very exciting presentation for you. But before we begin... Um, it, uh, it appears as though Mormon Stories is doing pretty well as a podcast. I think we have around 250 subscribers formally, and I would estimate around 300 listeners uh, worldwide. So that's uh, quite exciting. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please remember to email us with your thoughts or questions um, at mormonstories at gmail.com. But more preferably, we'd love you to go up to uh, mormonstories.org, our blog, and um, comment, post comments. When we post this podcast, go up there and uh, start a conversation. We want to have a little community um, that continues to be nurtured around discussing these stories and uh, their relevance and importance to you and to the overall community. So um, with that, I'd like to go ahead and um, begin this podcast. I'm very excited about today's guest, but before I uh, introduce him, let me just give a brief introduction. Some of you may have listened to uh, a previous pos- podcast that I did um, where I interviewed a young man named Hiram who uh, has left the church, uh, the Mormon church, um, and who runs a website now called uh, thechurchisnottrue.com. And uh, that uh, podcast was called Inside the Mind of an Anti-Mormon. And what I tried to do was not bashed with Hiram or denigrate him or anything of that nature. But I just tried to discuss his perspective and why he does the things he does and why he feels the way he feels. And if you remember that presentation, I started out by saying that I wasn't crazy about labels, that I think uh, within the context of Mormon studies, labels can be quite uh, damaging um, to conversation, to understanding, uh, to empathy, etc., and I mentioned that I wasn't crazy about the term anti-Mormon. Well, uh, up until about a year ago, um, I viewed the term apologist uh, with as much uh, sense of it being a pejorative as anti-Mormon. Um, but it turns out that uh, there are many people who actually bear that moniker with pride. Um uh, the apologist. And so what I wanted to do is bring someone from, let's say, the other side of the f- philosophical or doctrinal spectrum on Mormon stories to tell their story. And so today I have invited uh, a man named John Lynch. John Lynch is from Campbell, California, which is in the Bay Area. He is uh, currently semi-retired um, uh, formerly uh, has worked as an executive in high-tech companies. He is uh, a f- uh, proudly married, uh, 17 years of marriage actually, with uh, three wonderful children, he tells me. He studied at Brigham Young University, studied uh, international relations there. And he's currently serving as the chairman of the board for FAIR, uh, which for those of you who don't know, FAIR is the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research. You can go up to fairlds.org and check out what they do. Um, but without any further ado, uh, welcome to Mormon Stories, John Lynch. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm personally very excited to have you on. I'm, I'm uh, very grateful that you accepted this invitation because I guess you don't know who's out there when they're asking you to come on their program. Huh? It's kind of a shot in the dark, would you say? Yeah, that's uh, that was one of our concerns when we first uh, heard that you were asking for someone from FAIR to come on uh, to your show, but... Uh, you know, you've you've proven yourself to be a pretty even-handed guy with people, and so we're we're happy to be here. Well, thank you very much. Um, well, the way I'd like to begin, and for me, it's about the most valuable part of the the whole presentation, is just to hear a bit about your story, your journey. Um, you know, tell us about uh, how you were raised within the context of the church, what your experience was, uh, you know, as a child, as a teenager 
even as a young adult. And what led you uh, um, into being interested into apologetics and ultimately to FAIR? Well, I guess, you know, my story basically begins with the the fact that I, I'm a convert to the church. I was not baptized or raised a Mormon. Uh, my family was traditionally Catholic. But I was raised with a very sound, fundamental belief in God, and I never questioned that. And as I grew up, I found myself with a number of questions that needed answering and things that I had contemplated. I remember a teacher one time mentioning the fact that poets try to answer the question of life, and I thought, well, I'm severely disadvantaged because I don't even know what the question is. But uh, as I started to think about it, the, the question for me was why? And as I thought about it more and more in, the, in a kind of a universal perspective, I realized that the, the question of why was, for, for me at least, was why is a world that has so much opportunity and yet so much pain, why would a God if he was just and all-powerful and all-knowing, allow pain and difficulty to take place. And the only reason that I could conclude was that he wanted us to learn. And as I thought about that more, the whole idea of learning and developing and growing said to me that this was a God who wanted us to be more like him, to progress and to improve ourselves to the point of perfection, whatever that might mean for you. And that, you know, served me, that was, a, that was a, one of the gotcha items that kind of came on in my mind later when I studied, when I had a friend of mine who came about who was an inactive Mormon, came to my father's house and would um, hang out just to, you know, be with friends and began to talk about this golden Bible or something I didn't know what he was talking about that fell from the sky or something, I wasn't sure what it was. My father, who had taught me to be questioning of things and to be you know, to reason with your mind and that sort of thing, I decided that I would, I would take him as my project to pick him apart a bit. The more I attempted to argue with him, the more I realized that the things that, that he taught me were things that I variably, you know, ver that I actually believed. Things like the notion that the purpose of life is to learn and that we're to improve ourselves while in this life and that our ultimate objective and the objective of our Father in Heaven is to help us become like Him. So those things ring very true. And another, I think, pivotal, pivotal element of my story was the fact that when I was um, six years old, my mother passed away. She died of lung cancer. And I remember uh, an event. Several of the relatives had come over to the house and were sitting around with my father trying to help him figure out what he was going to do with the five young boys that he had to care for now with without a mother and they were sitting at the table and as a young boy I was supposed to be in bed but I was sitting in the hall back a bit where people couldn't see me very well and was watching my father had his head down and was staring at the table as this conversation seemed to bounce around without him as one aunt you know offered to take one child and another one said well I could take a couple here and that sort of thing and I remember watching my father suddenly straighten up and he became resolute and he slapped his hand on the table and he said no this family's together, and it will stay together. Hmm. And I remember the impression that that made on me as a young six-year-old boy, and it stayed with me. And later in life, when I learned that the Mormons taught that marriage was an eternal principle, that families were intended to be together forever, that rang so very true with me. Right. Um, and so, you know, basically when the circumstances then permitted, and I learned as much as I could about the Mormon church, um, I joined. At what age were you uh, learning about the church? I was 19 years old when I first started to learn about the church. I was actually engaged to a young woman. Um, unfortunately, a friend of mine had informed me that uh, that you had to be married in order for this temple marriage to be effective. You had to be married only in the temple. You, our original plan was we'd we'd get married, we'd get baptized. And then we would go to the temple, and he not being active in, in the church mistakenly told us that, no, that wasn't possible. And so I told my girlfriend, well, I guess we're going to have to postpone the wedding because, for me, I wasn't willing to contemplate um, anything else. And um, that broke her heart in some ways, I suppose. But, uh, you know, in retrospect, it turns out to be one of those things for the best. She had uh, She had some very difficult circumstances in her life, and... She ultimately ended up breaking off our relationship, and 
um, I went on and joined the church and then later served a mission in Panama. Wow. Okay, great. So um, was that weird to kind of go on a mission as a recent convert? It was a little bit. The, you know, the, it's kind of funny because the greatest thing that happened to me on my mission was that I kind of transformed from being somebody from the outside, feeling like I was on the outside looking in, and I kind of became somebody that felt like he was on the inside. That, um, you know, I kind of felt that I gained a level of acceptance. Yeah. So how, how much were you able to study the church history and doctrine before joining or even uh, up into your mission? Well, prior to joining the church, I'd read most of the Book of Mormon um, and was I'd read Gospel Principles. Um, the, those were books that my friend happened to have laying around, and so I read those. I was fairly conversant with the teachings. As far as on my mission, you know, I had read the standard works by the time I had gone on my mission. While I was at the Missionary Training Center, I read um, anything I could get my hands on that they'd let me read, Jesus the Christ, you know. Um, all of the standard books, Marvelous Work and a Wonder, all that sort of thing. Right. So how did you go from uh, mission to uh, apologist? What was your path? Well, when I returned from my mission, my desire was to actually work at the Missionary Training Center while going to BYU. And I was fortunate that I was able to do that. While I was at the Missionary Training Center, I had the privilege of working as a trainer and as a trainer of trainers. I even had the opportunity to work with the training and on a couple of occasions of the mission presidents and that sort of thing. I loved missionary work. I, I, I gained a lot in terms of my own spiritual development while I was, I was a missionary. I loved working with missionaries themselves. I could have the worst day, go to work at the MTC and come home and I would be on cloud nine. It didn't matter. Right. And so I, I basically, I, I loved missionary work. I'm a people person by nature anyway. And when I left BYU, um, I ended up serving on a couple of different occasions as a stake mission president, once in Los Altos, and Los Altos Stake in California, once in the Santa Cruz Stake. I served several times as a ward mission leader and that sort of thing. And uh, a member of my ward was involved with FAIR and was looking to publish a book uh, on behalf of FAIR and needed funds in order to get it started. And so I put forth the funds. I agreed to put forth the funds um, to help publish the book. It was a Barry Bookmore book, um, Restoring the Ancient Church. Hmm. And how'd that, and, how'd that book do? Uh, it did fairly well. It uh, it 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 sold several thousand copies, and um, you know it had like all books. It had its it had its run. Um, I I think it's a very useful book. I think it's a very good read as well. It's got some great insights in it as far as what uh, what organizations were in place and making the argument that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not the emergence of some new or different type of Christianity, but it's actually a, a restoration in the organizational sense and otherwise. Right. But uh, anyway, when I when I made that contribution, I was invited to join the board, and there you go. Huh. Interesting. So, how much have you? How much time have you spent, uh, either before or after, delving into um, sort of early church history or deep doctrinal issues uh, that maybe become the nucleus of the types of issues that that Fair gets involved with? You know, I've always been one that was curious and desires to learn, but I've never been one that felt that I wanted to chase. Um, minute or pet issues. I, I'm I'm a generalist in that sense that I I'm curious about any and all things. I I love to read. My daughter gets on me because she likes to write fiction, and I keep telling her I, I find history much more fascinating than I do uh, than I do fiction. And so I I just can't bring myself to spend any time on fiction. So I spend a lot of time. You know I've read a lot of church history, a lot of the biographies of the prophets and early church leaders and that sort of thing. Right. Um, so you know. In terms of how much have I delved into it, I, I have no way of quantifying it. Uh, you know, it's a curiosity. It's a, it's, it's a, it's an impulse in some ways, just out of just out of love of learning. Sure. Okay. Well, good. Well, I've I've written down like a hundred questions I've wanted to ask. So, how how much do you know about the history of Fair as an organization? 
Well, uh, what would you like to know? Like, uh, when did it start? How did it start? Who started it? You know, well, I guess we can start there. Well, it was it basically started by a group of individuals that were frequenting the um, AOL message boards. And what, uh, what year? Around what year was this? No, I want to say this is around '95. Okay. About that time frame, and a number of these individuals. Um, started to realize that there was a need to share information in order to be effective in their attempts to provide adequate answers to those that they were dealing with. And so the idea was presented that they could create a website and they could begin to share information. That evolved into the notion of it of it being a nonprofit organization that could actually perhaps even do more and help um, sponsor the gathering and actually pinpointing what information could be brought to bear on particular arguments against the church. And that was kind of the nucleus. That's what got it all started. Okay. So what what how would you define apologetics? Well apologetics by definition is the defense of a faith. The defense of and, faith. Yeah, and I would say that that's, that's exactly what it is. I would say that FAIR as an organization is dedicated to trying to give people who are seeking seeking to have room for faith, the opportunity to have that faith. That in light of, you know, those who, um, for whatever reason, have re have arguments against a belief. In, in this particular case, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints being the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, upon, or the restored Church of Jesus Christ upon the earth. Interesting. So when you, you know, a lot of times in the church today, members characterize their testimony um, more as a knowledge than as a faith. But you talk about providing fertile ground for faith. How do you how do you see are you are you trying to defend people's knowledge based testimonies or faith based testimonies or how do you sort of see that, that uh chasm or, or spectrum between faith belief and knowledge? Well I you know, I don't think that they're that having knowledge negates the demand for faith. Um, there were a number of times, there, there are a number of instances in which Joseph Smith taught the, the, the continuing integrated role of faith in driving a person to continue to act. It's a principle of action in all intelligent beings, etc. And I don't believe that all testimonies necessarily are born purely of knowledge. I believe that many of them are based on faith, that many individuals um, continue even even despite the fact that there are things that they don't have answers to, things that they don't have sure knowledge of, but yet they have strong fundamental belief in these things. Certain areas perhaps that they do have knowledge of, spiritually confirmed knowledge, and they use that to rely upon in order to help them, uh, based on faith, to bridge the gap over certain things in which they don't have as much assurance. Right. There's this primary song that's uh, relatively new where they say faith is knowing. And I've always struggled with that a bit because I, I thought the Book of Mormon defined faith as, as hoping or believing, not knowing. And then I, I had a um, CES instructor in my ward really get on me when I said that faith was a hope or a belief. And he said, no, faith is knowledge. Do you, what, how do you come down on that? I mean, you kind of just explained it, but if you had to, I'm not asking you to disagree with the church or the hymn, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that. No, it's okay. You know, for me, there's, uh, people have different different views, and a lot of it has to do with what a particular word means to you and how it's been used in, in your particular experience. And for me, faith has always been... Um, as for me, it's always been what Joseph Smith described it. It's a principle of action. And that principle of action can be based upon a belief, not a hope. I do hope that believe that hope is completely different. When I was a young missionary in Panama, I learned that the word for hope in Spanish is the same word as to wait. Esperanza. Esperar. Esperanza or yeah. esperar. Yeah. And with that realization, I came to the conclusion that hope is a passive experience whereas faith is an active experience mm. and so when when you have faith you act on a belief whether that belief is rooted in knowledge or is rooted in 
some other driving force that causes you to act in the absence of knowledge. It, to me, it doesn't matter. It's that principle of action. Hmm. Okay. So tell us, um, how, what is the structure of FAIR? How is it organized? Well, some people would claim it isn't. <laughs> um, no, to be honest with you, FAIR has a governing board of directors. We've um, there are there are three board of directors, and we have um, a president, Scott Gordon. Um, we have a few officers that function under it, and then it's pretty much all volunteers. So it's a it's a pretty flat organization from that standpoint. And the volunteers step up to help with areas that they have expertise, where they have knowledge, or where they have a desire to contribute. And, uh, you know, we, things kind of get done based on what people are able and willing to do. Well, what's the role of the president? Scott is, uh, Scott's our fearless leader in a lot of ways. He's, uh, he's the guy that kind of makes sure that, uh, that things happen the way that, uh, that we as a board have have chosen to kind of drive it in terms of direction, in terms of, of policies and that sort of thing. Um, he's very active in, in making sure that our annual conferences are, um, are well organized, that we have appropriate speakers. He takes a lead role on that, um, makes sure that the website is up and running and you know the lights are on and all that sort of thing. So he's he's very much of a of a uh, of an administrative facilitator, making sure that things are running the way that they need to be. And he's also one that helps communicate the vision down to those people that are trying to help. Right. So so is is he like full time salaried kind of thing, or is it more Is he volunteer too? Is is there any staff at fair that's funded by some type of central source? There is no paid staff at fair. Wow, not at all. None. So Scott's just volunteer. Does he like have his own job? He he does. He's a he's a uh, a dean at a college in Northern California. Oh, cool. Okay. So, um, w you know why? Let's say the fair didn't exist. You know, would this is going to be a loaded question? But I mean it sincerely. You know. Would that be a bad thing? Why is fair needed at all? So let, I'll ask it a different way as well. You know, the brethren are sustained as prophets, seers, and revelators. Very smart men. Um, very good men. Very inspired men. Very capable men. Former CEOs and heart surgeons and lawyers and PR people. You know, you one could an observer from the outside could make the argument, you know, these are big boys. These are boys who know what they're doing. They're inspired. They have the mantle... You know they can handle the church on their own. Why, why does fair even need to exist? What you know? So, what would your answer be? Well, in the light of what you just put it, I'd probably say that we didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, no, what what? Uh, let me make a couple of points here that that maybe could give some clarification as to as to why we do exist. Um, first of all, let me just make the statement that we are not affiliated with the church. Um, and we don't claim any affiliation. Um, that being said, you know, you, you raise a very good question as to, and I think that what you're really driving at is, what difference do we hope to make? Um, and even in that regard, let me just make another comment, and that is that there is a tendency amongst people to try and, quote-unquote, steady the ark. In other words, to counsel the brethren and tell them what they should be doing. We are not that. We do not attempt, nor do we desire, to be to speak on behalf of the church, to stand up and say that you know this is the way things are should be. Rather, what we look to be is a resource, a resource of information which helps to gather things that um, gather information and arguments that can be used by individuals who are having their faith challenged by those individuals, well-meaning or not, that uh, for whatever reason bring up issues that challenge their faith, that cause them to question the church, and that sort of thing. We defend the church. We defend its uh, doctrines and practices. We defend its leaders. And that's not to say that, um, that we speak on their behalf. It just simply means that when something is brought up as an issue, 
on our part, we seek out those who have information that we think would be relevant to those people that are going to seek answers on that issue and make it available to them. So when you say not affiliated with the church, there have been people who have, who have maybe spread rumors or said that the church funds you guys in some way through donations, through support, you know, is that true, not true? Absolutely false. So there's I no church funding supporting you guys in any way? None whatsoever. Hmm. How about through paying faculty at BYU to be a part of what you do? Is that even remotely fair or not fair? No pun intended. <laughs> Uh, no, you know, it, it's there's the people that participate from BYU do so on their own. Um, oftentimes what will happen is we will, we will come across an issue that we believe needs to be addressed and um, we'll sit down together and we'll say, who are some people that we think might be able to bring some, some appropriate perspective on this particular issue where they have some expertise and can actually help shed light. And we'll go and we'll reach out after them. We've, we've you know, we've brought people into our conferences as contributors who have come from church educational system, who've come from uh, farms, from BYU, and we've gone outside, you know, in many instances where we've brought in individuals who were uh, experts in completely divergent areas, you know, in the in fields of science and DNA, that sort of thing, that are not related in any way to anything associated with the church. Right. And, you know, one of the things that, that we feel is beneficial to the cause is actually the fact that we are independent, not in the sense that there's any shame if we were associated, but only in this in the sense that our ind our independence from the church allows us basically um, to answer critics without it being accused that this is some somehow um, automatically biased by the fact that it comes from the church that we're somehow tainting and that sort of thing. You know, I, I suspect that we will probably make mistakes as we go about this. We may say things that the church, um, that certain members of the leadership of the church wish that we hadn't said. And in those instances, we would like to have done better, I'm sure. But, you know, by not being affiliated with the church, we don't bring any taint to the church in, in the event that we do make a mistake. Right. I mean, that... That that makes sense, I would think, from the church's perspective, to make sure that um, what you guys did wasn't officially associated with the church. But you know, th this is one of my main questions that I have, more for the church than for you. But I'd love your your thoughts about it. Um, you know, there's this sort of popular personal essay that Steve Benson wrote, uh, the grandson of President Ezra Benson, mm -hmm. uh, when he left the church, where he talks about how. He was struggling in his faith, and he didn't, you know, he needed answers and was really feeling like the church wasn't what he thought it was. So his um, his father, I think, who was a stake president in the Salt Lake area, arranged a meeting between him and Elder Oaks and then Elder um, Maxwell, I believe. And, you know, the intent of the, the meeting, according to Steve Benson, was to ask all these hard questions, you know, the typical ones that you guys have up on your website. So, you know, they, he faxes his questions ahead of time. He goes to the brethren to meet with them. And, you know, by his account, which obviously is, is his own account and only his, you know, he said maybe his wives, but he's like, for many of the questions he asked, the answer was, we don't know. We don't know. We're not sure. And... And, you know, that I've always wondered because, you know, you th these um, these attacks against the church are not new. You know, take Adam God or take polygamy or take Book of Mormon authenticity or whatever. They've been around for a long time. And one very easy approach for the church to take, you would think, would be, hey, okay, there are all these attacks. You know, we have church archives at our disposal. We have all these scholars, we have uh, inspiration from God. So we're going to put up a big old directory on the church website of all the attacks and the issues. And we're going to dispel the myths, we're going to clear the air, we're going to acknowledge where things are valid or where they're illegitimate, and we're going to just deal with these issues front and center. You know, that's something that personally, you know, selfishly, I would love to see. But they don't do that. Instead, you know, you guys do that. And so this is sort of the question that I 
tried to ask before, just spun in a different way. But can you speculate as to why the church itself doesn't answer its critics more directly? Or is it, or is it potentially because a lot of these issues there really aren't answers for and are, require faith? And if that's the case, then again, why do you guys exist? Because if the church doesn't want to answer the questions and it's really a faith issue, then why even spend time on the issues? I know it's a huge question, but it's it's a sincere one that I have. Well, you, you, you bring up several things that, that I could comment on. I Let me first state that um, if, if the brethren say that they don't know, it's not my place to try and say what they should or shouldn't know. Right. But having said that, um, and I'm not going to go and now start to say what they should should know. Um, I would only say that I think that the role of the church, and I and I think that um, rightfully so, is to bring people to Christ. And their focus is a forward and an onward focus. It is not necessarily a focus where they need to allow themselves to get bogged down in tit for tat back and forth as to, um, you know, well, you you say that this particular issue is is a problem, and the church comes out with what they believe is a reasonable answer, and then somebody finds you know what they believe is a chink in the armor and that sort of thing, and it's back and forth. I don't believe that that is becoming the purpose of you know of of a servant of God in the sense that that their goal is forward and onward. Having said that, there are a number of church leaders who, of course, have addressed issues throughout the history of the church. Um, you know, John Taylor himself, who was president of the church, as you know, um, as an apostle, as a missionary, and otherwise, was famous for the many tracts that, that he wrote that were in direct address of attacks against the church. Um, and, you know, hosts of others who really sought to, to address the, the more challenging issues that challenge people's faith. For me, what I can answer is the purpose of FAIR, and the purpose of FAIR and what we hope to accomplish by being in existence is to provide information that balances the negative information that's out there in a faithful way, that allows people the room for their faith to grow, to continue. Um, I think that there are times when someone can be at a moment of personal weakness for whatever reason, for whatever their circumstances may have brought them to, and they come to begin to question things. And when they begin to question, a lot of times they go looking for answers. I can't address, you, you mentioned the issue of Steve Benson, I can't address his specific circumstances. I, in fact, um, had tried contacting him recently and um, because I wanted to sincerely understand, you know, what his experience was. I, I wasn't familiar even to where to look. And, um, in fact, I'm just now starting to read some of some of the things that he went through. So I can't speak specific, for example, to him. But I do know that individuals, when they, when they come to moments of crisis of faith, when they hear things that make them say, wait a minute, and they stop and they pause, they want to know that there's answers out there. They want to know that there are... are reasonable responses to reasonable questions and reasonable inquiries. And some of the some of the things that we deal with are reasonable questions. Some of them are what I would consider unreasonable questions and we deal with a lot of those. But in the in the sense of those reasonable questions that people have, our desire is to put things into context and to help people understand um, the circumstances around the particular question or issue or even the answer and how the church can still be true. Right. Um, you know, the, I think that they're, and to answer your question, I think that if the brethren say that they don't know, I think it's because they're sincere. They don't know. I, and in one part, I, it wouldn't surprise me if they would be hesitant to even proffer their own ideas, to put them forward, because it is, it is so common for individuals to latch on to um, a particular comment of a general authority and try and cause, you know, even try and use that later against them by saying, ah, well, so-and-so said. I mean, if you were to look at the history of the church and all of the comments of all the general authorities, which are so well-documented and are so readily available to, to everybody, 
if you were to go back and read everything that's ever been published, you'd find lots of reasons to hear five different perspectives on just about any issue you could raise. Right. So I think that you know it would be wise for the leaders in today's world of the internet and instant information and communications and recordings and that and the like when they don't know and they don't want to speak on behalf of the church that they say they don't know they might have their own opinions and and leave it at that and just say that you know if the answer is not definitive then leave it as being non-defined not defined sure okay well that that makes sense sure. uh i think that's a really good introduction so far let me let me ask one follow-up question um try and paint uh paint an environment and ask you how you, whether you empathize with it and um what your thoughts are about it it's 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 sort of related to the previous question but you know one of the biggest challenges i see is the huge chasm between what is taught in the church in sunday school and primary at the pulpit even in general conference um, and in seminary and church education system, the chasm between that and sort of the other information that's out there. So let me tell you what I mean. If you went around and polled most Mormons today, for example, and asked them, you know, uh, how many wives did Joseph Smith have? I think almost all Mormons, well, I'm sorry, I, I think more than half of all Mormons would say Joseph had one wife, Emma. If If you asked them, to name the number of wives or how many, uh, or they wouldn't be able to. Um, yet I, you can't really claim the church is hiding that because if you go up to familysearch.org and search on Joseph Smith, you'll see a bunch of names. But it, you know, to me, it's 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 strange or uncomfortable or something that there's such a, a broad unawareness about something so fundamental as the marital status of your founding prophet, the man who you have birthdays for, a whole general conference around. Um, and, and if you go down the line, you know, the, the translation process for the Book of Mormon, most Mormons believe that, you know, there was a veil and that Joseph was behind the veil and that it was using some type of magic, a breastplate and Urim and Thummim and translating characters. Yet even, you know, Russell M. Nelson in the Ensign acknowledged that, you know, at least in some parts of the translation process, there was a, a stone and a hat and the face and the hat and the plates might not have even been in the room. And you could you could go down the list and probably name 10 or 20 what I would consider to be majorly fundamental historical facts or, you know, doctrinal facts that, you know, the average Mormon is just totally unaware of. And so what happens is, what happened to me? I was called as a seminary teacher and I wanted to teach Doctrine and Covenants better. So I started reading uh, church manuals and then um, I wanted to learn more. So I started reading Leonard Arrington and then, whoa, I wanted to learn more. And then I started reading, you know, uh, you know, Bushman and then Quinn and then Brody. And then before I knew it, I felt deceived. I felt like I wasn't given the full story. Like I had spent 35 years in the church seminary, you know, education at BYU, uh, just Sunday school, three hours of church every Sunday, yet these really fundamental things I never knew. Or, or, or a black person who joins the church and then finds out afterwards that blacks were denied the priesthood for a hundred and whatever years. So can you sympathize with, with people who experience that deep chasm between what they're taught and then what they find out? And do you have any thoughts or comments about that? I absolutely can sympathize. Um, you know, I think that what what you basically described there is what I think a lot of people who come to fair are experiencing. They're looking for a, a reason, a why, and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, I think that one of the things that's important to keep in perspective when you're looking at, and it, this comes back to the issue is what is the purpose of the church and the aims of the church and keep in mind that this is an international church where I would venture to guess that the vast majority of the members that are alive today have been converted in what the last uh, 50 60 years yep um, so they're most you know the, the vast majority of the church members are converts to the church um, consistency and 
and that sort of thing is is an important element in trying to communicate people is you know it's a question of what do you include um, take for example th this is a, an issue of criticism that has been raised by individuals um, I've, I've heard apologists raise questions about this people that are associated with fair and that is the question of uh, the how much should the church mention about polygamy you brought up Joseph Smith for example well take for example um, any of the other presidents of the church you know we're now going through in our priesthood and relief society manuals um, studies that for, of the teachings of a ver variety of the presidents of the church and what oftentimes is not included is is information about additional wives for example so like when, in the Brigham Young manual where it says brethren's take care of your wives and it's maybe changed to say your wife or it mentions Brigham Young's wife but it never talks about the others is that kind of more the latter yeah, yeah where where he you know th there's there's more an exclusion of information and that sort of thing and you know you have to look at the polygamy is a is a hotbed issue and I, I don't think that we can even hope to, to cover a portion of it here today but you know if you look at it from the perspective of and let's let's just go with the assumption that um, that it was practiced um, as in, instructed by God and that it was terminated as instructed by God and that now you have individuals who contrary to that current instruction of God to not participate try to look back at the history of the church and use it as justification for their continued practice of it for their um, justification for criticizing the current church leaders who teach against it that sort of thing now all of a sudden and on top of that, as a worldwide church, let me also add that you have a body that is looking to um, reach as many people as possible. Those that lead the church, those that follow them, believe sincerely that this is the church of Jesus Christ restored and that the mission and the goal is to bring our Heavenly Father's children from the four corners of the earth to Christ, that they might receive the blessings of his sacrifice and his atonement that they might be saved by the grace that he provides. And when you look at the church's effort and desire to move people in that direction, um, to have something like the issue of polygamy, which is now not an issue in the current teachings of the church, um, to have individuals try and look back and justify it based on other teachings, is this something that you, that you want to propagate or that you you know rightfully should let simmer and I think that you know not including all of that necessary inform all that true information in a church publication whose goal is to bring people to Christ is necessarily the right thing to do so I guess what I'm saying is that there are instances where um, bringing information which is true and correct up at the very first comment in the very first introduction is not necessarily going to help you to achieve your goal of bringing people unto Christ. Now, you know, a lot of people accuse the church of of deception by omission. I've been accused of that myself um, in my conversations with individuals who later learned that, you know, I was associated with FAIR, for example, um, and you know because of the fact that fair helps to defend the church they they discounted then all of my very genuine remarks prior to that well I could easily see that um, you know it, the church has to make difficult decisions about how much information needs to be put up in headline form and how much needs to be made available the, the interesting thing to me and I and this is this is the a great credit in my mind um, a great credit to the church is that most of the criticisms that people raise against the church these days, the most credible ones, and the one in, in terms of the ones that people can actually point back to, you mentioned Joseph Smith and his polygamous wives and that sort of thing. The most credible evidences that people get, they found on church publications. Yep. Things made available from the church. Yep. Um, they found them in the BYU archives, or they found them in the Journal of Discourses, or they yep. found them in some other publication that you can, you know, we, we joke at FAIR that, you know, when people accuse the church of hiding information, we say, you know what, they got us. We hide them in these secret dark chasms <laughs> called LDS bookstores, you know. Yeah, if, if you can believe it, I, just a month or two ago, I, I teach Elders Quorum in my local ward, and 
you know, I was seeing this happening. I mean, people were learning things on South Park about the church that they never learned in the church. You know what I'm saying? And I, you know, and and people are leaving over this stuff. So I well, let me just let me just comment. Uh, you know, South Park, uh, um, from what I understand, uh, also had an episode where they declared that uh, the church was true. <laughs> that's true. So yeah, yeah, that's a really funny. That's a really funny episode. Yeah. That would uh, the exact quote was that would be the Mormon Church. Yes, the, the Mormon, Mormon is the correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> no, but so so I actually gave a <laughs> I actually gave a lesson once. I, the lesson was three things about Joseph Smith you should all know before you hear it from an outside source. And the three things were he 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 did he was engaged in in sort of uh, you know gold seeking or silver seeking or treasure seeking as a young boy and he did it with a seer stone that was number one um, number two was that um, the traditional view of how he translated the plates um, you know isn't exactly uh, all the information we have and the third was was that his martyrdom or his incarceration was tied to the plural wives thing and William Law and the Nauvoo Expositor and then his destruction of the printing press. Well, most people don't know those three things but would view them as very fundamental. And the way that I gave that lesson without being totally kicked out of the church is that I quoted from the ensign. I quoted a, a talk by Elder Nelson where he where he talks about Joseph Smith in his early years. I talked, uh, I, I quoted a, a quote from Dallin Oaks where he talked about, you know, the martyrdom and and I, and then about the polygamy thing, I used LDS uh, FamilySearch.org and just showed the wives listed under Joseph. And and um, you know, you're right. It the church is not hiding um, this stuff. Yeah. 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 And that's you know that's a that's a criticism that we often get. And again, like I said, I think it's a tribute to the church and to the leaders, to their dedication. You know, a lot of people claim that the that the church is dishonest. You know. I think that there is a difference between being dishonest and offering up to your critics, you know, ammunition against you. Ammunition against you. Yeah. Yeah, and you know the church doesn't shrink from its history. Um I think that the the, the church does a better job than probably any other religious institution in the world in being very open about its own past. Right. Well, I'll express a wish and then I'll I'll um, ask you if you have a comment on it because obviously we're not we don't want to be arc steadiers here. But I personally totally see why the church doesn't uh, start with the meat, especially with investigators and young people and young members. What I struggle with is, um, it, you know, some people would call the meat, um, you know, the central meat of of Christianity being things like service and the very simple things because those are the most hard. But let me just redefine meat for a second and say it's finding out a way to deal with some of these tougher issues, right? I wish that there were an advanced institute class or an advanced Sunday school class or something where you could just get the skinny on polygamy and get the skinny on the black thing and get the skinny on the, you know, basic arguments about archaeology and geography and the Book of Mormon and DNA, you know, where you where you could get at least a church-sponsored sort of next step understanding, acknowledgement, and reconciliation. Because I I don't think that exists anywhere in the church. And so, yes, it's fair to say, don't introduce all this stuff to young people or investigators. But but what about those who are leaving because of these issues? Where do they go that, that, that they can feel is actually church-sponsored to get answers? I mean, other than the, you could say the Holy Ghost and prayer, but there are a lot of people who that's, it's not working for them. They need people to talk to. And frankly, most bishops don't know about these issues. And so they go to their bishops and either the bishops become disturbed about these issues um, or or the bishops just say, I can't help you. Or they even worse, make them feel bad for asking the questions to begin with. Do you ever wish that there were a place people could go? Uh, that was officially sponsored by the church so that they could know that this was official support and not sort of secondary? Well, first of all, let me say that I think the fact that things show up in the ensign, such as what you've mentioned, uh, where you got some of the information for your elders quorum lesson, I think the fact that some of it shows up is an indication that the church does address 
um, issues. I think that what the church doesn't do is they don't say, somebody brought up an argument that the church is false because of blah, blah, blah. Well, here, let us tell you why it's not. You know, that, that's just not the way that the church operates, from my experience. The church has always been one of being those that promote faith, doesn't necessarily um, give audience necessarily to those who would criticize, um, give credence to them by, by turning around and saying, well, we better address that necessarily. That's done on an individual basis. That's the way it's been addressed, actually, um, since the early days of the church, I think, where leaders of their own accord took it upon themselves to address a particular issue. That's why John Taylor, for example, as I've mentioned before, was such an ardent defender of the faith, because he took the initiative on his own. But having said that, um, you know, I think that in as much as the, um, the people have a need to find answers, there, there are resources that are developing. The clo one of the problems that I think that the church faces is that in as much as people want an official answer, the church can be just as trapped by official answers. Um, you know, the, if you look at the history of the church and the things that, that take place, and I, I imagine that my comment that I just made will probably become fodder for, for critics or people that take issue with fair even, but um, one of the things that, that, uh, that I think takes place a lot of times um, as the church looks to, to give responses is that, you know, those that are dealing with the answers aren't necessarily those same people that created the question to begin with. If you could go back and you could question Brigham Young on some of the remarks that he's made that people have used to criticize the church, I think that you would get some very insightful answers that would probably set greatly at ease the concerns that individuals have about those remarks and the way that they were recorded. We don't have the benefit of that. Uh, we don't have the benefit of you know, all the accuracy of the historical records that take place. And so for the church, you know, the history's out there. What's been recorded has been recorded. The church doesn't hide it. They make it available. But for them to go through and begin to interpret and to say that, well, you know, um, this is the way it is or this is the way it isn't, it, it, it opens room for criticism later if, if, in fact, that turns out not to be the case. A good example of that for me would be the hemispheric theories versus um, the limited geography theories of the Book of Mormon. Um, there is evidence with the, that we have that indicates that from the very earliest days there was a belief in a limited geography theory. But at the same time, there were people making comments about the Lamanites, referring to pretty much any um, American Indian, as they were called, um, as being a Lamanite. And you know, I think that for for most scholars today, LDS apologists and the like, most of them probably not all, um, would say that there's, that there's a greater credence to a limited geography theory than to um, a hemispheric model for the Book of Mormon. Okay. And so what you end up with is if the church would, had come out and said, well, we believe that it took place on the American continent and that it certainly included North and South America, now all of a sudden you know, we can later find, for example, that um, there are evidences of Afro-Asiatic languages, for example, um, uh, and, and commonalities in um, verb migrations and adverb migrations and that sort of thing with the Udo-Aztecan languages, which would actually lend credence more towards, a, again, a limited geography theory. Um, as we see those things, those things can then be used against the church. So I don't think it behooves the church necessarily to go out and say a make a bunch of definitive statements. I think that the history is what it is. The, the purpose of the church, the purpose of the leaders, are to be, for example, the apostles are to be a special witnesses of Jesus Christ. They're not to be a special witnesses as to the, the geography of the Book of Mormon <laughs> or a special witnesses of you know, how many wives Joseph Smith should or shouldn't have had when he did or didn't get married. Their focus is on Jesus Christ, the atonement that he brought and the things that he accomplished there. And I believe that that is what they should be focused on. Now that doesn't, again, doesn't mean that there aren't questions that can have reasonable, reasoned answers provided. But I don't think that that's the goal or the mission that the church has is to answer the critics. But if they were to go out and try and answer the critics, their focus becomes on the critics and not on their real mission, which is to bring people to Christ. Yeah, I, I would say that in, in worldly terms, that would be playing on the defensive versus the offensive. It, it would be letting other people set your agenda versus setting your own agenda. 
Yeah, and yeah. I think that that's that that's that that's a fair characterization if you want to put it in those terms. And really, what it does then is it it causes the church to keep a very a very tight focus in a particular direction. Um, and that doesn't mean to say that the questions that are raised aren't valid. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to understand and to find responses. And I think that that's one of the reasons why there is a role for an organization like FAIR, which is not affiliated with the church, to go out and to seek those answers and to speculate as to responses. You know, some of the things that are, that are put out by FAIR are people's best estimates, best guesses. Some of them are statements of fact that refute um, our critics. But, you know, needless to say, being an apologist doesn't necessarily mean that we're always right. You know, it's just that we believe that the church isn't wrong. Let's put it that way, that the church is true. And that's what I mean by the church isn't wrong. Right. The church is the place where the priesthood keys have been placed and confided by our Heavenly Father to help us to progress, um, to be able to return to Him, and ultimately to be exalted. So... I'll just ask one last question on this sort of area, and then I want to move on and, and talk a little bit more about fair. Um, but it, some would argue that it almost feels like the, that the brethren want it both ways. On, on the one hand, they want to say, you know, we're prophets, seers, and revelators. We are special witnesses of Christ. We have the keys and authority unlike any other men or women on the earth. We get, you know, you, you, you as members of the church should trust us, should follow us to and obey us. And when I say us, you know, the guidance that we get from God and Jesus that we communicate to you. Um, and by the way, you know, we have a history that is worth remembering and here's all this good about our history and here's all these great things about um, past prophets and leaders what a wonderful legacy we have what inspired you know uh, leaders and, and great leaders Th so that's on the one hand and then on the other hand you know critics could say oh but you know don't don't hold us too accountable for what we say if it's a past prophet you can kind of ignore what they say, but if it's me now, well, you have to obey me now and, and, and listen to what I say. And, you know, if it's bad history, we're not going to emphasize it as much, but if it's really good history, then we're going to talk a lot about it. So some would argue that there's sort of this, um, you know, it's, it's a tough line to walk, uh, that they're kind of saying, don't look at the bad history as much, but look at the good. Uh, we are special, so follow us. But we're not perfect uh, because, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So what would your reaction be? I, I would say that it is a fine line and it's a difficult one to walk. And I fully empathize with the leaders of the church. And, you know, I think that they probably have human tendencies where they would like to address some of these issues. And I think that they feel that it's best that they don't, um, you know, for whatever reason. And... Um, you know, as far as as far as the the fine line is concerned, and you know, how do you walk it? That's something that they will be accountable for themselves, and I don't mean that in an accusatory fashion. Sure. I mean it in the sense that they are not accountable to me. They're not accountable to you. They are not accountable to any anti-Mormon or ex-Mormon or anybody else. They are accountable mm -hmm. if they have been called by God or by Jesus Christ. They are accountable to Jesus Christ. And I would not want to be one to stand and criticize them when they have such a weight of responsibility upon their shoulders. I, will, I am fully happy to let them do the best that they can and for me to be the best follower I can by sustaining them, helping them be successful, regardless of what flaws they might have in their own personal character or, or what have you. Well, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to Mormon Stories Podcast. We hope you're enjoying part one of Inside the Mind of an Apologist um, with our special guest, John Lynch. 
Um, per your feedback, we've decided to go ahead and split uh, this podcast up into a few segments because anything over an hour, from what we understand, is too long. So uh, please look for us uh, to come out with part two quite soon. Please give us your feedback at mormonstories.org up on our blog site. Uh, tell us what you like, what you didn't like. Um, if you want me to have uh, John Lynch back to ask him some follow-up questions, I'm sure he'd be amenable. Um, so post those follow-up questions as well. If you think I let him off too easy or was too hard on him, let me know. And um, we hope you'll tune in to part two and three. Um, thanks again for joining in with us on Mormon Stories, and we hope to hear from you again soon. Take care.